If you would open your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is where we will begin in just a moment. Matthew chapter 5, as we enter into the part of our worship where we study from the Bible and learn what God has to say to us today through the pages of His Word. Good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors. As has already been mentioned, thank you so much for being here. Tenemos visitantes de otras partes. Muchas gracias por su presencia. Bienvenidos. Buenos días. We are thankful to have uh, among us even some that don't speak English so well, so I wanted to greet them as well. But uh, we're thankful for everyone who's chosen to be here. It's always a blessing to be here and to open God's Word together and to worship God. I have a few things I need to say before I get started. First of all, uh, don't forget that this Friday and Saturday is our Bible workshop. This is this week. On Friday night, we'll be having our singing here at the building, and uh, there will be a short lesson after the singing. We want to encourage everyone to come. Uh, while the workshop is really targeted toward the younger, uh, the, the singing on Friday night is targeted to everybody who wants to worship God in song. So we encourage everyone to be there. Uh, to the high school and junior high, uh, we're having our devotional tonight at our house at 5 o'clock. Don't forget about that. Um, I also wanted to mention, you know, uh, last week I was down in the front, and we had some things to talk about, and one of the things I talked about was uh, us being close to each other, and then on Wednesday night I had every preacher's nightmare. So I, I, there are actually several preacher nightmares. One, one is that you're late, uh, one is that you don't have a sermon when you're called on to preach, and then I think we all have the one where we are not appropriately dressed. But um, this is the one where you preach for an entire Bible class on Hebrews, and your fly is open, and nobody tells you. So I told some of my brothers after the, the class, I, I looked down, and sure enough, no one had said anything. I don't know if anyone noticed, but I thought we were going to be close. <laughs> that was my goal, so... Uh, but uh, on Wednesday night, we also uh, had the great news that, uh, that Macy Wall uh, put on Christ in baptism. That was just an awesome thing. Macy has come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. She's come to be convicted of her sins, and she had those sins washed away. I saw Macy, and, and she was crying, which you know, I'm a guy that kind of makes me feel weird. We don't know what to do when girls are crying. I went to her, and she said, oh, no, they're tears of joy. That's a beautiful thing. So we rejoice with the angels in heaven over that news. So, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11. Matthew 5 and verse 11. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the sermon that is so beloved. It contains the golden rule and the Lord's prayer, turn the other cheek. And Jesus here speaks of the blessedness of the persecuted Person. There is an expectation of persecution. He says specifically there in verse 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So the reason Jesus says you need to turn the other cheek is because Jesus anticipates that people will be slapping us. The reason why we pray for our enemies and those who persecute us is that there will be people who are enemies and persecutors of his disciples. We're speaking this year, our theme for the year, the readings that our elders are reading and the readings that we're doing in our daily devotional are all geared around the idea of the kingdom, the unstoppable kingdom, that when God has established his kingdom through Jesus, nothing is going to stop it. 
And I want to take some time this morning to transition us into a new area of study. For the next several months, we're going to be pursuing this. And that is that when God acts to establish his kingdom, Satan attacks it. And Satan attempts to undo what God has done. And those tactics that Satan uses, that he used in the first century when God first acted through Jesus, he continues to use in our time. And so it is well worth our time and attention to say, these are the ways God is going to work and Satan is going to try to stop God. This is what we're going to study this morning and for the next several months in our first Sunday lessons. That is the idea of Satan attacking the kingdom. And this morning, we're going to focus on how Satan uses persecution to try to stop what God is doing. Now, that is a large part of the message of the book of Revelation, that Satan is going to use persecution and hardship and sometimes government oppression to intimidate the people of God into disobedience and into discouragement. And I want to talk about how we see that, particularly in the opening chapters of the book of Acts this morning. Now, persecution is a term that varies in terms of what exactly it's referring to. Even in the text that we just read, you see a lot of different ideas. You see reviling. You see the idea of excluding or preventing access, uttering evil against someone. Some of the definitions of persecution are about harassment. But, you know, we don't... We don't deal with those things on a regular basis. As Americans, we are blessed to live in a nation that was founded on the principle of religious freedom so that the government is not going to oppress us because of our religion. But we need to understand that the fact that we live in America is not a guarantee against persecution by any stretch. And that Jesus' definition of persecution in verse 11 can very much happen today in America in 2019 in Little Rock to you and me. I have to say, too, sometimes we kind of have our heads in the sand about this, but we need to know that Christians around the world are being persecuted in record numbers. That all over the world, people are facing the choice to serve and confess Jesus or to die, or to be thrown out of their country, or to be thrown into prison. And there is no guarantee that those things are not going to happen to you and me. The question is still the same. What will we do when serving Jesus is hard and it hurts. And the New Testament church can help us there because what the New Testament church does is not to give up when persecution arises, but instead what the New Testament church does is to thrive and to reach out to God in times of persecution. So let's look at their example for a few minutes this morning. Let's look in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the way I want to do this is just look at five scenes in the book of Acts and then from those, we'll draw some lessons for you and me today. Acts chapter 4 is the first one. You know, because we've been reading these in our daily devotionals, a lot of the stories that we're going to read this morning, but I want us to pull them all together so that we can get the feel of them all in a row and the message they're trying to give us about how God's kingdom cannot be stopped. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 says, as they, this is Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they're arrested, but notice they haven't done anything wrong. All they've done is preach about Jesus and they annoyed the wrong people. Now we're going to see this again and again. Very often persecution says more about the persecutor than the persecuted. It's more about their jealousy 
or their incorrect view or their feeling threatened than it is about anything that the Christians are doing. But Peter and John are arrested. They're brought before the Sanhedrin, which is that group of Jews that rules the nation, same group that convicted and murdered Jesus. Now they are here with Peter and John before them. Verse 8, Acts 4 and verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So when they're questioned, Peter and, bold, Peter and John are bold. They don't back off. They don't say, oh, you know, you're right. We'll quiet it down. Sorry, we didn't mean to cause such a ruckus and get this big crowd. Peter says, in fact, no, you guys are guilty of rejecting him and killing him, and now God has made him into the Messiah, the, the cornerstone that you have rejected. So, what happens next is that Peter and John are threatened. Don't preach anymore about Jesus. Now imagine what that would feel like. Think about it. I think most Christians do their best to stay on the right side of the law. But to have government figures, powerful men, tell you, do this again and there will be consequences. You will be breaking the law. To think that now you've been arrested and threatened by the very people who the last time you saw them, they were conspiring to have Jesus killed. I know for me, there would be a temptation to say, you know what, maybe we ought to keep this quiet a little bit. And, and I would say something like this, let's just be smart about it, okay? You know, at this day, let, let's just not do anything too public or provocative. Let's just, let's just be careful. Let's be wise, and I might even throw in, you know, Jesus said, be wise as serpents. But I want you to notice what they do in response to this threat. Look in Acts 4 and verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices to get together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they get together and they pray together. And do you see what they pray for? They pray for boldness. Don't let us get scared, they say. We need your help. And they say, we know that all we've seen here is just the next chapter and what's been happening for a long time. The idea of the people and the governments of the world gathering together against God. And the truth is, it never works. 
The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. So what happens? They threaten and say, don't preach anymore. And you know what happens at the end in verse 31? They continue to speak the word of God. Satan tries to attack the kingdom and it doesn't work. Look at Acts chapter 5 now. In Acts 5, of course, this isn't the, the last we're going to hear of this. They're not going to just flout their instruction and get away with it. So in Acts 5 and 17... The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So here we learn the motive was jealousy. Again, sometimes we suffer because other people have evil motives. Now you got a little back and forth here because they lock them up and then an angel releases them. They don't know where they are. They got to go track them down in the temple and all of that. I want you to look down in verse 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So Peter, again, is very bold. Did you notice? They had prayed for boldness. Here he's bold again. We must obey God rather than men. Translation, I will not do what you say. I'm going to obey God. You can keep commanding if you want. I'm ignoring it. I'm going to obey God and not you. There is boldness there. He also says, you killed God's Savior. He says that again. He also implies that last little statement in verse 32, God gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him, which, hint, hint, isn't you. Okay, that's what makes them so mad that they want to kill him in verse 33. Of course, Gamaliel tells them, hey, we don't want to kill them. Instead, they settle for this. In verse 40, Acts 5 and verse 40, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So they beat them. They have committed no crime except to preach something that the rulers don't like. That's their crime. So they are beaten with the 39 lashes that the law allows, and they suffer together. And two amazing things happen. Did you notice them? One is in verse 41. They are happy, rejoicing that they have been counted worthy to suffer. They see this pain as a blessing. In fact, I think this is just Jacob's opinion, Jacob's reading of this. But I think what they are saying is, Jesus suffered for me, now I get to suffer for him. And if we take Jesus' suffering for us seriously then there is something in that that is empowering to say, you know, if I have a little hardship, it'll be okay. He died for me. The other thing that's impressive here is that with their wounds still fresh and open, they keep preaching. Verse 42. So, if that's what happens, Satan then attacks the kingdom again, and again it fails. And I want you, as we read through these stories, to notice how at the end of each story, there is this concluding idea. By the way, it didn't work. By the way, it didn't stop it. The kingdom continues to progress because Satan can't stop God. In Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is one of the seven that the Jerusalem church appoints to help with the daily distribution of food. And in Acts chapter 7, he is called before the same council because 
he has been preaching a little too effectively, and there are some false accusations. Remember what Jesus said about people reviling and speaking falsely against us as a form of persecution? Now Stephen has become a target. They pull Stephen into the council, and Stephen preaches to them. We've been studying this for the last couple of weeks in our daily devotionals. I want you to look at the conclusion of Stephen's sermon, what we're about to get to in our daily devotionals, in verse 51. Acts 7 and verse 51. Having recounted all of history, particularly the part of the history of the Jewish people that talks about rejection of God and rejection of God's messengers. Acts 7, 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who re- you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen, with those last few verses, 51 to 53, boldly tells these Jewish leaders, you resist the Holy Spirit, you've killed the Messiah. You are like your fathers who... It's easier to count the number of prophets that they didn't persecute than the ones that they did. And now you have just followed in their tradition. Now Stephen has struck a chord with them. It's interesting to me. Sometimes when we decide that people are so far afield of reality, they're kind of crazy. We dismiss what they say. Oh, he's just crazy. Don't worry about it. If they just thought Stephen was crazy, they would have laughed him out of the Sanhedrin. But what he says strikes a chord. They know There is truth to it, and it makes them mad. They're cut to the heart. So they throw rocks at him. I don't know if you've thought. I thought a little bit of this week about it. I don't know if you've thought about what it would be like to die by stoning. But the idea of people throwing rocks, like getting punched in dozens of places all at once, opening up fresh wounds, and at some point, The injuries and the intensity of this moment become so much that probably you pass out. Horrific and violent way to die. And to know that you haven't done anything wrong. You don't deserve this. Something is is going on in Stephen, though. Do you see it? As all of this is happening to him, he says, "I, I see the Son of Man. And then he says something that I don't know, it's hard for me to say when somebody even says an ugly word to me, like that guy that tried to hit us in the car yesterday, Sarah. When we, I, I don't know how you could say this. In verse 59, he says, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry, I want verse uh, 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So, Stephen dies unfairly, unjustly, and shows us that God even allows his people to die in persecution. And it looks like Satan wins here, doesn't it? In fact, 
it gets worse. Look in chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the Jewish authorities get aggressive. Saul is the ringleader. And they begin to seek out and imprison Christians. What, what was sort of a wait-and-see policy before now becomes an aggressive policy of extermination for this religion. It looks like Satan wins. It looks like things are about to end, doesn't it? They're going to snuff out this movement. But look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Something funny happens. It's almost like you, you step into the anthill... And you think, all right, I'm going to get rid of these ants. And what happens? Now they go everywhere. Now you got ants everywhere. you got a bigger problem. And so it happens with the church. Now the gospel keeps spreading. And it spreads all throughout that region as people go preaching the word. And then Saul, you know, Saul, who's the ringleader, what happens to him? Well, Jesus appears to him. He decides this is the wrong direction to go. He begins to preach the gospel that he is persecuting. And suddenly... What looked like the end because of the death of Stephen and the persecution that arises over that now has been turned completely. Look in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. As you look at how all of this scene is summed up, listen to what Luke says. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Satan doesn't win. When you see summary statements like that, what does it mean? It means God's kingdom is growing and advancing and progressing. Satan failed. Look in Acts chapter 12 with me now. Acts chapter 12. <clears throat> Acts 12 and verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Wonder if that was enough, huh? Four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So now we have a fresh effort of persecution where Herod, because of his own insecurities and his own hubris, he decides he's going to attack certain apostles. And he kills James. Remember James, one of the inner circle of Jesus? He kills James with the sword. And then he arrests Peter because he sees how happy that made all his people. Now, the church prays for Peter. And I am struck by that because... If I'm a member of that church, it would be very easy for me to be discouraged. If after James is taken, James is killed, no matter how many people prayed for him, James was still killed, and now here's Peter, it sure looks like Peter's going to be killed too. He's just waiting for the right time. And yet the church prays. And as they pray, an angel releases Peter from the jail. Peter leaves town. And then... Herod gives a speech where the people begin to declare him a god. And look at what happens to Herod. Acts 12 and verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Verse 24. But the word of God increased 
and multiply. Isn't that interesting? How that have that little summary there? Here's Herod. He makes this strong effort to stop God, and then Herod's gone, and the word keeps growing. You cannot stop God. So, as you read those stories, please don't take me to be saying that it's okay, not a big deal that Stephen died or that James died or that martyrdom is just not that big a deal. We just need to deal with it because God's kingdom is still growing. The point is, Satan has a goal that's beyond just killing people. His goal is to stop the spread of the gospel. And that goal fails because you cannot stop God's kingdom. I want to look at one more in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Now, I'm going to read this one as sort of typical for a lot of the rest of the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, the same pattern plays out. Some variations, but mainly the same pattern of Paul going to preach in a synagogue and then being argued with and eventually kicked out of the synagogue so that he has to go preach to Gentiles. In Acts 13 and verse 44, it says, The next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Down in verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout men of high standing and the lead, devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Do you notice that last verse? Paul gets run out of town, but the disciples. You see, even though Paul has to leave, there are still little cells of disciples that are left behind wherever he preaches. So Paul is going to be persecuted. Paul is going to be beaten. Paul is going to be stoned. But the gospel still grows. In fact, look down in chapter 14 with me in verse 19. Acts 14 and verse 19. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They stone Paul and leave him for dead. They think he's dead. I mean, it must have been brutal for them to assume that he had died. And then he walks up, gets up, walks on, as if nothing had happened. And he has this message. Just imagine if you are a new Christian and your first experience of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus is watching a man get stoned. He says in verse 22, he encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul says, this is part of it, guys. Sometimes you're going to suffer. Now, the rest of the book of Acts continues on that same trajectory. Paul is going to be going and preaching the synagogue, run out of town, leaving little cells of Christians, little churches. He'll be beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He'll be run out of Thessalonica, run out of Berea. He'll get laughed out of Athens. He'll be formally opposed in Corinth. There'll be a riot in Ephesus. Eventually, he's going to be plotted against. Eventually, he's going to get on a hit list. That's hard to do. And he's going to be harangued by the Jews all the way until he appeals to Caesar. 
Paul keeps being persecuted, and the gospel keeps growing. Now, looking at these passages, please hear me. It helps us to see why Satan uses persecution. Have you noticed it? The goal Satan has is to demoralize Christians. He wants us to feel that maybe maybe we don't really believe this as strongly as we thought. I loved what Daniel said before our song service. If we actually knew that there was a high expectation that we would suffer for coming here, I wonder if we would come and bring our families, and invite others. There is something about that that, that it evokes a visceral response from us that says, maybe I'm not sure how much I believe this. And if the threat is powerful and scary enough, we tend to lose heart. And then there is this feeling, and again, I refer you to the book of Revelation, which describes this very well. There is this feeling that if the government's against us and all the people are against us, and everybody thinks what we believe is ridiculous, it kind of feels like the whole world is against us. And who am I to stand up against that? That's the feeling Satan wants persecution to bring to us. And Satan also wants to use power to stop God's people, to force us to stop. Satan's all about power. And God uses people who have no power. In fact, God seems to glory in that so that the power is shown to belong to him and not to us. But if Satan can stop us by force of arms, by government, political power, then he's going to try to do that. Do you remember this passage where they quote in their prayer, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That last part is how they turn it. They were gathered to stop you, but in fact, they were gathered and you used them to do your will. So, does persecution work? There's two ways to answer that. Persecution doesn't work in this sense. Persecution cannot stop God. God's going to continue to have his purposes fulfilled whether we're a part of them or not, whether we're discouraged from them or not. But I think there is another part of this that is the question I want to focus on for just our last couple of minutes here. And that is persecution can work on you and me individually. Persecution can work when you and I get so scared that we fail. So, I want to spend the last couple of minutes just giving us some takeaways about how we bear up under persecution. The first thing that I want us to see is that we need to expect it. In fact, it seems to me that a large part of the battle is fought right here. If we believe that this will never happen to us, then when it finally does happen, we will be so demoralized and discouraged that we will think something has gone horribly wrong. Paul tells new Christians through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. That is the biblical reality. And sometimes, because we live in a comfortable country, we get divorced from the biblical reality. We need to see it for what it is. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus even tells us, let me tell you why that is. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, the issue is not who's in charge of the government. And the issue is not how are things going in our country. The issue is the world versus God. 
And those are two spheres that don't overlap. So if we are going to have allegiance to God, then there will always be conflict and tension with people who have an allegiance to Satan. Jesus says, expect it. In fact, he says, I've said all these things to you, talking to his apostles, to keep you from falling away. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. See, he wants us to expect it because he says, there will be a time when you look back and you say, oh yeah, Jesus told me about that. Expect persecution. Part of this, by the way, is about calling it what it is. Persecution is not about, well, my boss is kind of mean. Or that policy that our government passed is unfair. Or this has something to do with the liberals or my mean relatives. This is about persecution. When people are harmful to me because of my connection to Jesus, I need to call it what God calls it. He calls it persecution, and I need to be ready for it. Second, I need to pray in confidence. You remember when the apostles are threatened, what do they do? They go and pray, and they pray for boldness. When Peter is arrested and put in prison, the church prays. They pray for God to help. Confidence stems from the fact that I know God's kingdom will not be stopped. And if I am living for God, I know God and I are on the same team. We're pushing in the same direction. I can be confident that he's going to hear me. But I also want to say something else about praying. As I studied through this, I think it's important for us to remember what Jesus says about prayer in persecution. Do you remember? Do you remember? Pray for those who persecute you. We need to remember that Jesus wants us to see the people who hurt us as people who are in need of salvation. They have their own moral failings and struggles and concerns. He wants us to relate to them and to ask God for good for them. You, you know, they may hurt us, but we ask and we love because we want them to have blessings from God, particularly that he'll turn them from the path that they're on. But suffering is a time to reach out to God in prayer. Third, and probably most important, we need to bear witness. One of the crucial things about persecution is that we cannot allow the threat of harm to keep us from saying what needs to be said. This is the message of the Bible over and over again. That there are opportunities we have to speak for God. Maybe that's by our life and our choices, like Daniel who continued to pray when he was forbidden for praying by the government. Or maybe it's by actual speech, like the apostles. Hey, whose name are you doing these healings in? What can they say? It's an opportunity to say, let me tell you about what God has done in Jesus. Jesus tells his apostles in Luke 21, 12, and 13, but before all this, they'll lay, hand, they lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Isn't that interesting? Instead of saying, this is the end and everything is terrible, he says, no, no, this is the way it needs to be because now you have a chance to speak for me, to bear witness of what you know the gospel to say. So we're told not to be ashamed. Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father. We're told always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We bear witness. The fear is that if we speak up for Jesus, things will get worse. But the reality is, 
if we're going to suffer anyway, we might as well suffer for saying what Jesus taught us to say. The reality is Jesus wants us to bear witness for him. And the last thing I want to say is that in dealing with persecution, we need to see the good. They rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer shame or dishonor for the name of Jesus. What I'm talking about here is the idea of interpreting our own pain, our own dealings with persecution. And the scriptures teach us to focus on the good and not just the pain, particularly the connection we have with Jesus as a result of that. 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You share Christ's sufferings. You suffer like he suffered. Jesus has already suffered. Jesus told me to take up my cross. It may be that this is what that means. The Hebrew writer tells us that we need to take this suffering as discipline from the Lord. Paul talks about how persecutions reveal his weakness and connect him to Christ. Paul talks about how suffering brings patience and that strengthens his hope. He sees the good. This is another time when confidence, though, really helps to know that God's kingdom won't be stopped. Because I know that even if I suffer to the point of death, even if people hurt me in ways that I can't even imagine now, all that happens is someone comes behind me and takes up the flag I've been carrying. And the cause goes forward. I need that confidence. I put a picture on the board of the Colosseum. The place where Christians were fed to lions and killed for sport and entertainment in the days of the Roman Empire. Christianity has long been, from its inception, a persecuted religion. Though in many places it is a majority religion, yet very often throughout history people have suffered and died. I don't know for certain what to expect as an American. But I do know this. Satan hasn't given up on America. And I don't know what tactics he's going to use to try to stop what God has done and continues to do in the lives of his people who are Americans. My question, though, is a little more personal. My question is, Whatever Satan's attacks will be, will we be strong enough to continue faithful to God? Will persecution work on me? Will I allow fear to cause me to compromise my faith? Or will I continue faithful? May God bless us, both as individuals and as a church, to endure the suffering to which we're called. There might be someone here this morning who needs to obey the gospel This is the time of our worship where we offer the invitation. All that is is a time that we've set aside to make sure that if you have a spiritual need, you want to let this group know about that you have an opportunity to do that. Particularly if you are someone who has not yet become a Christian and you're interested in becoming a disciple of Jesus and having your sins washed away by His blood, we'd love nothing more than to talk to you about that. If you're ready right now to turn away from your sins, to be baptized into Christ, have those sins washed away, 
Now is the time for you to come. Please come up to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.